Chapter 90 Cinder glanced toward Lavana, who was peering at the newcomers over one of the throne's carved arms. Then, Lavana looked at the second gun, lying forgotten near the doorway. Scarlet gasped as her body lurched forward of its own accord. Cinder dove for it too, sliding across the slick floor. There were too many weapons, too many threats, and she did not have enough hands. Instead of grabbing the gun, she shoved it and watched as it went careening past Scarlet toward the audience's raised dais. A second later, the weight of Scarlet's body landed on top of her. Scarlet grabbed her by the hair and yanked her head back, nearly snapping her neck. Cinder cried in pain and rolled over, shoving Scarlet off her. Maintaining her grip on the gun, she whipped her arm around, sending the back of her metal hand into Scarlet's temple. She grimaced at the impact, but it worked. Letting go, Scarlet skidded halfway across the room and lay sprawled across the floor. The guilt didn't have time to sink in. When she heard a roar, fear drew her attention back toward Wolf. Snarling, furious, he was already charging toward her. The gun, the knife. It was Wolf, but it wasn't Wolf, and she didn't have the strength to fight him off. Not now, not again. Cinder scrunched up her face as a drop of sweat slid into her eyes and raised the gun. But Wolf's focus was on Scarlet's fallen body, and when he leaped, he cleared Cinder entirely. She spun around, stunned, as Wolf scooped Scarlet into his arms and cradled her against him. Wolf, who was a monster, who was one of the queen's uncontrollable beasts. He was still Wolf, after all. Gulping, choking, gulping again, Cinder raised herself up. She lost balance and fell onto one knee. Wolf, she stammered. Please, help Cress and, and Thorn, please. He raised his head, green eyes burning at first. But then he looked over to where Cress was clutching her stomach, deathly pale, to where Thorn was crumpled against a fallen chair, looking like he wanted to go to Cress, but was terrified that his own body couldn't be trusted if he got close enough. Wolf gave an understanding nod. Relieved that, if nothing else, she could trust Wolf to get her friends out of here and start tending to their wounds, Cinder tried again to stand. This time, she succeeded. She stumbled toward the throne, gripping the gun in one hand and the knife in the other. When she rounded the dais, she saw Lavana on her knees, one hand dug into the folds of her dress while she clung to the back of the throne with the other. Her coronation gown billowed around her, elegant and distinguished, a sharp contrast to her grotesque face. She had given up on trying to use her glamour. Cinder hated her own mind for labeling the queen as grotesque. She had once been a victim, as Cinder had once been a victim. And how many had labeled Cinder's own metal limbs as grotesque, unnatural, disgusting? No, Lavana was a monster. But it wasn't because of the face she'd kept hidden all these years. Her monstrosities were buried much deeper than that. Another drop of sweat fell into Cinder's lashes, and she swiped it away with the back of her wrist. Then she lifted the gun, aiming it at Lavana's heart. At the same time, Lavana lifted her hand that had been tucked into the luxurious fabric. She held the gun that Cinder had shoved toward the dais. Her arm trembled as if the weapon were impossibly heavy, and it was clear from the way she held it that she had never held a gun before. She was queen, after all. She had minions to do the killing for her. 
The queen locked her teeth in concentration, and Cinder felt the muscles in her right arm pull in tight against her bones. The tendons started to cramp, the ligaments tightened. She grimaced and looked at the gun in her hand, at her finger on the trigger. She tried to pull the trigger, urged her finger to pull, begged it, pull the trigger, pull it. Her hand began to shake, the gun wobbling at the end of her arm. Her breaths came in short, stifled gasps as the trigger dug into the pad of her finger. But she couldn't pull it. She couldn't. Lavana's terror began to melt away. Her lips twitched in what could have been relief if her brow hadn't been furrowed with so much concentration. She kept a firm hold of Cinder's arm, the finger, the gun. Lavana's tongue snaked out of her mouth, wetting her parched lips. Ah, she whispered, gaze flashing with pride. You are tired too, I see. Cinder snarled. An earthquake rumbled inside her body. She settled her focus on the queen's trembling hand and lashed out with her thoughts. Lavana's eyes widened. Her hair clung to the scar tissue on her face. She looked down at her own hand, as much a traitor as Cinder's. Cinder forced Lavana's arm to bend. She guided the gun upward, every centimeter a battle, every moment a struggle. Lavana flushed red. She pinched her teeth in renewed concentration, and Cinder felt her own arm following suit. Her traitor of a hand lifted the gun and pressed the barrel against her own temple. She was the mirror image of her aunt, each of them primed to shoot. This is how it should have ended the night of the ball, Lavana whispered. This is how it should be. She smiled a madwoman's smile and stared at the place where the gun pressed against Cinder's damp skin. Cinder remembered the night clearly, like a nightmare she'd never forget. Lavana had controlled her, forcing her to take Jason's gun and hold it against her temple. Cinder had been sure she was going to die, but her cyborg programming had saved her. It would not save her this time. Goodbye, niece. Cinder could not take back her own arm, but her body burned with resolve. She would keep her finger from squeezing the trigger. She would not let Lavana pull it. She would not. The finger twitched, throbbed, torn between two masters. Such a tiny limb, a tiny, tiny finger. The rest of her willpower tightened around Lavana's own hand. She could feel the bioelectricity sizzling in the air between them. She listened to the crackle of energy. There was an ebb and flow to their strengths and their weaknesses. Cinder would think she was making progress, curling Lavana's finger inward, only to feel her own finger twitch against her control. A drop of sweat tickled the inside of her elbow. A stray hair clung to her lips. The smell of iron assaulted her nostrils. Every sense was a distraction. Every moment she could feel herself growing weaker. But Lavana's brow was drawn too. She was sweating too. Her face contorted with the strain. They were both struggling for breath and then, a snap cracked loud inside Cinder's head. She gasped and her hand dropped to her side. Her muscles ached from the strain, but they were her muscles again. She gulped down a breath, dizzy from the effort. Lavana sobbed with frustration. Her body sagged. Fine, fine, I surrender. She spoke so quietly, Cinder wasn't sure she'd heard right. 
Though she was still controlling Lavana's hand and still had the gun poised at Lavana's temple, the queen seemed to have forgotten it was there. Her face crumpled, her body wilting into the enormous gown. I relinquish my crown to you, my country, my throne. Take it all, just... Just let me be. Let me have my beauty again. Please. Cinder studied her aunt, her scars and her matted hair and her sealed shut eyelid. Her trembling lip and defeated shoulders. She was too exhausted for even her glamour, too weak to fight anymore. A shock of pity stole through her. This miserable, awful woman still had no idea what it meant to be truly beautiful or truly loved. Cinder doubted she ever would. She gulped, though it was difficult around her parched tongue. I accept, Cinder said, dazed. She kept hold of Lavana's trigger finger, but allowed Lavana to lower the gun. Cinder held out her hand, and Lavana stared at it for a moment before reaching forward and setting the gun into Cinder's palm. In the same moment, she grabbed the forgotten knife and lurched forward, driving the blade into Cinder's heart. The breath left her all at once, like her lungs imploding on themselves, like a lightning bolt striking her from her head to her toes. Shock exploded through her chest, and she fell backward. Lavana fell with her, her face tight with rage. She had both hands on the knife handle now, and when she twisted it, every nerve in Cinder's head exploded with agony. The world went foggy, vague, blurred in her vision. Instinct alone prompted her to raise the gun and fire. The blast knocked Lavana away. Cinder didn't see where the bullet had gone, but she saw a line of blood arc across the back of the throne. Her vision glazed over, all white and dancing stars. Her body was pain and blackness and hot and sticky with blood. Stars. It wasn't just in her head, she realized. Someone had painted stars on the throne room ceiling. A galaxy spread out before her. In the silence of space, she heard a million noises at once, far away and inconsistent. A scream, a roar like an angered animal pounding footsteps, a door crashing against a wall. Her name, muddled, echoing. Her lungs twitched, or maybe it was her whole body convulsing. She tasted blood on the back of her tongue. A shadow passed in front of her, brown eyes filled with terror, messy black hair, Lips that every girl in the Commonwealth had admired a thousand times. Kai looked at her, the wound, the knife handle, the blade still buried. She saw his mouth forming her name. He turned and screamed something over his shoulder. But his voice was lost to her. So loud, but far, far, far away. Chapter 91 I told you I'm fine, Scarlet insisted, though her tone was weary. It's just been a really long few months. Fine, Emily screamed. 
By the way her eyes blurred and her blonde curls took up the screen, Scarlet could tell that the waitress, the only friend she had back in Ryu, was holding her port far too close to her face. You have been missing for weeks. You were gone during the attacks, and then the war broke out, and I found those convicts in your house, and then nothing. I was sure you were dead. And now you think you can send me a comb and ask me to go throw some mulch on the garden like everything is... is fine? Everything is fine. Look, I'm not dead. I can see you're not dead. But Scar... You are all over the news down here. It is all anyone will talk about. This, this lunar revolution and our little Scarling in the center of it all. They're calling you a hero in town, you know. Gilles is talking about putting up a plaque in the tavern about how Ryu's own hero, Scarlet Benoit, stood on this very bar and yelled at us and we are so proud of her. Emily craned her neck as if that would allow her to see more in Scarlet's background. Where are you, anyway? I'm... Scarlet glanced around the lavish suite of Artemisia Palace. The room was a thousand times more extravagant than her little farmhouse, and she hated it with a great passion. I'm still on Luna, actually. Luna? Can I see? Is it even safe up there? Em, please stop screaming. Scarlet rubbed her temple. Don't you tell me to stop screaming, mademoiselle, too busy to send a calm and let me know you're not dead. I was a prisoner, Scarlet yelled. Emily gasped. A prisoner? Did they hurt you? Oh, is that a black eye or is it just my port because my screen's been acting up lately? Emily scrubbed her sleeve over the screen. Listen, I promise I will tell you the whole story when I get home. Just please, tell me you're still watching the farm. Please tell me I have a home to go back to. Emily scowled. Despite her hysteria, she'd been a welcome sight, pretty and bubbly and so far removed from everything Scarlet had been through. Hearing her voice reminded Scarlet of home. Of course I'm still watching the farm, said Emily, in a tone that suggested she was hurt Scarlet had doubted it. You asked me to, after all, and I didn't want to think you were dead, even though, even though everyone believed it. And I did too for a while. I'm so glad you're not dead, Scar. Me too. The animals are fine and your android rentals are still coming. You must have paid them very far in advance. Scarlet smiled tightly, recalling something about how Cress had set up a few payments in her absence. Scar, she raised her eyebrows. Did you ever find your grandmère? Her heart had built up a strong enough wall that the question didn't knock the breath out of her, but Scarlet still felt the pang of remembering. It was impossible to keep away the memories of the prisons beneath the opera house. Her grandmother's broken body, her murder, as Scarlet watched and could do nothing. This and this alone was the one thing she dreaded about returning home. The house wouldn't be the same without her grandmother's bread rising in the kitchen or her muddy boots left in the entry. She's dead, Scarlet said. She died in the first attacks on Paris. Emily's face pinched. I'm so sorry. A silence crept in that moment when there was nothing appropriate to say.
Scarlet straightened her spine, needing to change the subject. Do you remember that street fighter who was coming into the tavern for a while? Emily's expression lit up. With the eyes? She asked. How could a girl forget? Scarlet laughed. Yeah, well, it turns out he's lunar. Emily gasped. No. Also, I'm kind of dating him. The view on the screen shook as Emily clasped a hand over her mouth. Scarlet Benoit, she stammered for a moment before. It's going to take weeks for you to explain this all to me, isn't it? Probably, Scarlet brushed her hair over one shoulder. But I will, I promise. Look, I should go. I just wanted you to know I'm all right and to check on the farm. I'll tell everyone you're safe, but when are you coming home? I don't know. Soon, I hope. And M, please don't let Gilles put up a plaque about me. The waitress shrugged. I make no promises, Scarling. You are our little hero. Scarlet clicked off the port screen and tossed it onto the bed. Sighing, she glanced out the window. Below, she could see the destruction of the courtyard and hundreds of people trying to put it back together. Artemisia was beautiful in its own way but Scarlet was ready for fresh air and home-cooked food. She was ready to go home. A knock sounded at the door and it opened, just a bit at first. Wolf hesitant on the other side. Scarlet smiled and he dared to come in, shutting the door behind him. He was holding a bouquet of blue daisies and looking immensely guilty. I was eavesdropping, he confessed, hunching his shoulders beside his ears. She smirked, teasingly. What's the point of superhuman hearing if you don't eavesdrop once in a while? Come in. I didn't expect you back so soon. Wolf took another step and paused. He had a slight limp from the bullet that had hit his side, but it was healing fast. That was one thing to be said for the alterations. Wolf had certainly been made to be tough. On the outside, at least. He frowned at the flowers, his ferocious teeth digging into his lower lip. He'd left to go back to the house that morning, his childhood home, though his mother's body had already been taken out to one of the great graveyards in the wasteland of Luna. It had been important to him that he see the house one last time, to see if there was anything worth saving there, anything to remember his parents by, or even his brother. Scarlet had offered to go with him, but he wanted to do it alone. She understood. Some things had to be done alone. Did you find anything? No, he said. There was nothing I wanted. Everything from my childhood was gone, and she didn't have much, you know, except these. He approached her, unable to hold eye contact, and handed her the bouquet of flowers. Over half of their delicate stems had been crushed or snapped in Wolf's indelicate fists. When I was a kid, I used to pick wildflowers for my grandmare. She would keep them in a jar until they started to wilt, then press them between parchment paper so they'd last forever. I bet she has an entire box full of dried flowers somewhere. She trailed a finger around some of the soft petals. That's what we'll do with these, in honor of Maha. She arranged the flowers in a half-full water glass that had been brought with her breakfast. 
When she turned back, Wolf had nudged aside the port screen and lowered himself onto the ledge of the enormous bed. Scarlet was pretty sure the linens had been made by slave labor, and the thought made her uncomfortable every time she crawled into them. As soon as he was sitting, Wolf's legs started bouncing with anxious energy. Scarlet squinted at it. This wasn't morning. He was nervous. What is it? She said, sinking beside him. She set her hand on his knee and it froze. His bright eyes found her. You told your friend we were dating. Scarlet blinked, and a sudden laugh tickled her throat. But at Wolf's distraught face, she held it back. It seemed easier than trying to explain the whole alpha mate system. He looked down at his fidgeting hands. And you told her you'll be going back to the farm. Of course I'm going back to the farm. She cocked her head, starting to grow anxious herself. I mean, not tomorrow, but once things have calmed down. Wolf's opposite knee started to bounce instead. Wolf? Do you still... He scratched behind his ear. Do you still want me to come back with you? Now that I'm... That I... He sucked in a quick breath. Do you still want me? Wolf seemed like he was in pain. Actual pain. Her heart softened. Wolf, she paused and swallowed. Ze'ev. His eyes snapped to her, surprised. The port screen chimed, but Scarlet ignored the calm. She shifted on the bed so she could face him and tucked one foot beneath his thigh. She said firmly, I still want you. His jogging legs slowly stilled. It's just, I know I'm not what you had in mind. Is that so? Because I was envisioning a big strapping fellow who can chop firewood and master the post hole digger and you certainly fit that description. I mean, my grandma and I got along just fine, but honestly, I'm looking forward to having the help. Scarlet. Zayev. She tilted his face toward her. She didn't flinch when she looked at him. Not at his enormous teeth or his monstrous hands. Not at the inhuman slope to his shoulders or the way his jaw protruded from his cheekbones. It was all superficial. They hadn't changed him. You're the only one, Zayev Kesley. You'll always be the only one. His eyebrows rose in recognition of the words he'd once said to her. I'm not going to say it won't take some getting used to. And it might be a while before we can convince the neighbor kids not to be terrified of you. She smoothed down a lock of his hair. It popped right back up. But we'll figure it out. His body sagged. I love you, he whispered. Scarlet slipped her hands through his crazy hair. Really? I couldn't tell. The port screen chimed again. Scowling, she reached over and silenced it, then leaned into Wolf, nudging his nose with hers. Wolf hesitated for only a moment before kissing her. Scarlet sank against him. It was as tender a kiss as any half-man, half-wolf mutant had ever given. When he pulled away, though, he was frowning. Do you really think the neighbor kids will be afraid of me? Definitely, she said. But I have a feeling you'll win them over in the end. His eyes crinkled. I'll do my best. Then his smile turned wicked. 
His hand gathered the material at the small of Scarlet's back, and he fell back on the bed, pulling her down beside him. Scarlet! Scar- Oh! They both froze. Groaning, Scarlet pushed herself up onto her elbows. Iko was half inside her suite, gripping the door handle. Her android body was covered in bandages, which were purely aesthetic. But there weren't a whole lot of android supply shops on Luna, and she'd told Scarlet she was sick of everyone staring at her. Sorry, I should have knocked, but you weren't answering your comms, and... Iko beamed, with more happiness than a person who ran on wires and power cells should have possessed. Cinder's awake! Chapter 92 Diagnostics check complete. All systems stabilized. Rebooting in three, two, one. Cinder's eyes sprang open met with a white ceiling and blinding lights. She jerked upward and hissed at the shock of pain in her chest. The woman who had been hunkered over Cinder's hand cried out and fell off her rolling stool, landing hard on the ground. Metal fuse pullers clattered beside her. Kai jumped up from a chair in the room's corner and rushed to Cinder's side, pushing his messy hair out of his eyes. It's all right, he said, supporting Cinder as she pressed both hands against her chest. She could feel a lump of bandaging there on top of the ache. She pried her startled attention off the woman, a stranger, and turned to Kai. Blinked. Noticed first how handsome he looked, and second, how exhausted. A spurt of data began to scroll against her vision in sterile green text. Emperor Kaito of the Eastern Commonwealth, ID number 008271-9057. Born 7 April 108 TE, FF 107,448 media hits, reverse cron posted 13 November TE. In a statement released this morning, Emperor Kaito informed the press that he has delayed his return to Earth for an indeterminate amount of time, stating that his presence is necessary at this time to oversee the reconstruction of the lunar capital. Cinder squeezed her eyes shut and willed the text to descend out of her vision. She waited for her heart rate to calm before opening her eyes again. Her lap was draped with a white linen blanket so thin she could see a groove in the fabric where the flesh of her left thigh met the top of her prosthetic leg. Her left hand was splayed out, palm up, on top of the blanket. The palm chamber was open, revealing a multitude of disconnected wires inside. What are you doing to my hand? She croaked. The woman climbed to her feet and straightened her white lab coat. Fixing it. Here, drink this. Kai held out a glass of water. Cinder stared at it for longer than she should have, her brain working through mud before she took it from him. This is Dr. Nandez, Kai said, watching her drink. She's one of Earth's best cybernetic surgeons. I had her flown up yesterday to, to look at you. His lips tightened and he wasn't sure if he'd overstepped some boundary between them. Handing the glass back to Kai, Cinder studied the doctor who stood with her arms crossed, tapping the fuse pullers against her forearm. Cinder reached for the back of her head where her panel was shut tight. I'm not dead. You almost were, said Kai. The knife penetrated one of your prosthetic heart chambers, which drove your body into survival mode. That chamber shut down while the rest of your heart was able to keep functioning. More or less. Kai glanced at the doctor. Did I get that right? Close enough, said Dr. Nandez with a weak smile. Cinder's heart throbbed with every breath. 
my retina display is functioning again. The doctor nodded. You are in need of a new processing unit. The one you were installed with wasn't designed for full underwater submersion. You were lucky it went into preservation mode, otherwise you wouldn't have had any function over your hand or leg either. I didn't for a while. Cinder tried to move her cybernetic fingers, but they sat unmoving on the bedspread. I'm sorry I scared you. Your reaction was warranted, Dr. Nandez gestured at Cinder's hand. May I? An awkwardness started to creep up Cinder's spine, her palm open and vulnerable right in front of Kai. But then she felt silly and vain, so she nodded. Dr. Nandez wheeled herself back to Cinder's side and set a port screen on the bed. A holograph flickered in the air above the screen, an exact replica of Cinder's hand and internal wiring. The doctor adjusted the image and bent over Cinder's hand again. You should lie back down, Kai said. You were stabbed, you know. I remember. Grimacing, she pressed her hand harder against her wound. The pressure eased some of the throbbing. 42 stitches, and something tells me you may have just pulled some of them out. Here, lie down. She allowed Kai to guide her back onto the pillows. She sank into the soft, crisp bedding with a sigh, though the doctor's surgical light was once again blinding her, and Kai had taken on a supernatural glow. Lavana's dead, she murmured. Lavana's dead. With that confirmation, and the stark memory of a gunshot and a splatter of blood burned into her mind, she opened her brain to all the other questions. They tumbled like a waterfall into her thoughts, Cress, Thorn, Scarlet, Wolf, Winter, Jason, Iko, everyone's alive, Kai said as if her thoughts were written in plain green text on her irises. But Cress's, her vitals are stable and they're hopeful for a recovery, but she hasn't come out of suspension yet. Scarlet had a mild concussion, but she's all right. Thorn lost two fingers, but he's a prime candidate for prostheses if he wants them. Wolf is, well, they can't undo the bioengineering without risking serious damage. But he's alive and seems, you know, like Wolf. Jason suffered some injuries, but nothing life-threatening. And Princess Winter, his gaze dropped. Cinder felt a jolt in her wrist, and her thumb twitched uncontrollably for a moment before there was another zing, and it stopped. She's been inconsolable since the revolt. They've had to keep her restrained. And... A lot of people died on both sides, but it worked. The outer sectors responded in droves, far too many for the thaumaturges to control at once. People were still coming in from the outer sectors for hours after the fighting was over. Another zap of electricity, then the snap of a metal latch. Give that a try, said Dr. Nandez, turning off the holograph. Cinder lifted her hand. It had been polished to a sparkling finish, and she could see echoes of her dark hair on the surface. She curled her fingers one at a time, then rolled her wrist back and forth. Spreading her fingers, she tested the functionality of the tools inside them, all except the gun, which she hoped to never fire again. Resealing her fingertips, she peered at the doctor. Thank you. My pleasure, said Dr. Nandez, standing. I'll be back to check on you in a few hours. As soon as she left, Cinder felt the air change, a sudden tension, a sudden stillness. She licked her parched lips. Are you the king of Luna now? Kai looked surprised at the question. 
No, as Lovanna was never the true queen, she didn't have the legal power to appoint anyone as king consort. I am technically a widower, but I think I can get that little mishap annulled. Little mishap? For something she risked her life to prevent multiple times, Cinder wasn't sure she could consider Kai's marriage a little mishap. A temporary mistake, he said, shoving away the surgeon's light so it was no longer blinding Cinder. With all that was going on, we never even had time to consummate. Cinder coughed. Unnecessary information. Really? You weren't curious? I've been trying not to think about it. Well, think no more. I'm still thanking all the stars, one by one. Cinder would have laughed, except it hurt too much. Pacing around the bed, Kai claimed the doctor's stool. The wheels clacked on the floor as he pulled himself so close his knees pressed against the bed frame. What else do you need to know before I let you get some rest? She ran her tongue against the roof of her mouth, wishing she would have drank more water. Am I? Do they think I'm the queen? She nodded. Yes, Cinder, you're the queen. The words were unrelenting. So unapologetic. They ran your DNA while you were unconscious, and you're definitely Celine. According to Lunar Law, that means you were the princess regent until your 13th birthday, at which time you became the queen of Luna. Lavana was the imposter. They're calling you the Lost Queen. They've been celebrating your return since the night of the battle. Of course, they will want to have a ceremony eventually. More for tradition than anything else. Cinder bit her lip, thinking of the years she'd spent under Audrey's care. A mechanic, a servant, a piece of property. All that time, she'd been royalty, and she had no idea. Even the thaumaturges, the ones who are still alive, say their loyalty is to the lunar throne and whoever sits on it. At least that's what they're saying now. We'll see how they feel once things start to change around here. Kai scratched behind his ear. The army is being problematic. We're recalling all those who were sent to Earth, but some of the soldiers are, well, not convinced the war is over. Some have gone rogue on Earth, and the Earthen militaries are doing their best to track them down, but we're hoping to. She reached for his hands, silencing him. She was still working through the fact that she was the queen. She was the queen of Luna. She reminded herself that this was what she wanted. This responsibility, this duty, this right, was what she'd been fighting for all along. The chance to rid the world of Lavana and change the country she'd been born to. To change it for the better. Kai's fingers covered hers. Only then did she realize she'd grabbed him with her cyborg hand. I'm sorry, said Kai. You don't need to worry about all that right now. Torn and I are taking care of everything, making sure the injured are taken care of, getting the city cleaned up. Oh, and the antidote. We're preparing some big shipments for Earth, and the technicians have been working to produce more batches. We've already sent more than a thousand doses home with the diplomats, and they say we'll have triple that amount ready to go out tomorrow evening. Although, he hesitated, a shadow crossing his face. The antidote is produced using shell blood, and there's a whole complicated mess of laws surrounding the shells and the antidote, and I didn't feel comfortable doing anything without you. That's something we're going to have to deal with when you're ready. He trailed off, though Cinder could see the struggle warring in his eyes. The relief of having the antidote at his disposal, coupled 
with the horrible things Lavana had been doing to obtain it. She tried to smile, but she knew how drained she must look. Thank you, Kai. He shifted his head, chunks of hair falling across his brow. I'm sorry, I should let you sleep. It's just, it's really good to see you awake. To talk to you about all this. How long was I out? Almost three days. She turned her eyes toward the ceiling. Three days. What a luxury. A much-deserved one. Kai lifted her hand and pressed his lips against her knuckles. Take your time recovering. The hard part is over. Is it? He hesitated. Well, the dangerous part is over. Can you do something for me? Kai frowned, like he didn't want to encourage any crazy ideas, but the moment was brief. Anything. Have all the Earthen leaders gone back to Earth? No, we were able to sneak all the Earthens out of Artemisia during the fighting once we got the ports open, but most of them came back after they learned you succeeded. I think they're all waiting to meet you. Can you call a meeting? You, me, the Earthen leaders, and does Luna... Do I have a cabinet or a prime minister or anything? His lip twitched like he wanted to tease her, but he withheld the urge. Normally, the head thaumaturge would act as a second-in-command, but thaumaturge Amory is dead. Your court is in sad disarray right now, I'm afraid. Well, whoever you think should be invited then, to an official meeting, an important one. Cinder. And my stepmother, is she still here? He frowned. Actually, yes. She and her daughter have been given a spot aboard one of our representative's ships, but it won't be leaving until tomorrow. Bring her too, and maybe that doctor that was just here. Cinder, you need to rest. I'm fine, I have to do this as soon as possible, before anyone else tries to kill me. He grinned, but it was a tender look. You have to do what, exactly? Sign the Treaty of Bremen. Saying the words brought a real smile to her lips. I want to make our alliance official. Chapter 93 Jason slumped in the visitor chair, watching the doctor check Winter's vitals with no small amount of envy. He wished he was the one to administer to her needs, to know from a readout of life statistics how she was faring and what he could do to make her better. Instead, he had to sit there and pretend to be patient and wait for the doctor to inform him once again that there was nothing to be done. They just had to wait and see if she would recover. Recover. Jason hated that word. Every time it was said, he could hear Winter's voice haunted and afraid. I do not know that even a sane person could recover from this. So how can I? Her heartbeat is still accelerated said the doctor, putting away his port screen. But at least she's sleeping. We'll check on her again when she wakes up. Jason nodded, holding back any of the multiple retorts he had. When she wakes up kicking and screaming. When she wakes up crying. When she wakes up howling again like a sad, lonely wolf. When she wakes up and nothing has changed. I don't get it, Jason grumbled, letting his gaze rest on Winter's forehead. At least she was calm in her sleep. It should have made her better using her gift, not worse. She shouldn't be like this after so many years of fighting it. All those years are precisely what caused it, the doctor sighed. 
and he too looked wistfully down on the princess. Too wistfully, Jason bristled. It might help to think of the brain and our gift like a muscle. If you don't use that muscle for many years, and then one day you decide to push it to its full potential, you're more likely to strain it than strengthen it. She did too much, too quickly, and it damaged her mind quite extensively. I am destroyed, she'd said, not damaged. Destroyed. And that was before Amory had even shown up. As soon as the doctor left, Jason scooted his chair closer to Winter's bed. He checked the padded restraints on her limbs. They were secure, but not too tight. She had often woken up with violent thrashing and clawing, and one medical assistant had nearly lost an eye before they decided it was best to secure her. Jason hated watching them do it, but even he agreed it was for the best. She had become a danger to others and to herself. Her teeth had even left an impressive gash on his own shoulder. Yet, he still couldn't fathom that it was winter lashing out. Sweet, gentle winter. Broken, destroyed winter. Jason let his fingers lie on her wrists longer than it was necessary. But there was no one to chastise him now, other than himself. The rash from the disease grew fainter every day. He doubted it would leave many scars, and what it did leave would be largely unnoticeable on her dark skin. Not like the scars on her cheek that had paled over time. He both hated and admired those scars. On one hand, they reminded him of a time she'd been suffering, of a time when he hadn't been able to protect her. On the other hand, they also reminded him of her bravery and the courage that so few people saw in her. In her subtly defiant way, she had dared to go against Lavana's wishes and the expectations of their society time and again. She had been forced to choose her battles, but choose them, she had, and both her losses and her victories had cost her so much. The doctors were at a loss for what to do with her. They had little experience with lunar sickness. Few people chose to let their sanity deteriorate like she had, and they could only guess what the long-term effects might be. And all because she refused to be like Lavana and Amory and all the rest of the lunars who abused and manipulated and used others to fulfill their own selfish desires. Even in her last desperate act, when she had used Scarlet's hand to kill Amory, Jason knew she had done it to save him, not herself. Never herself. Just like he would do anything to save her. He dragged a hand down his face, overcome with exhaustion. He'd spent every night since the fight at her side and was surviving on little nourishment, and even less sleep. His parents, he had been shocked to learn, were not dead. He had been certain that his defying Lavana's order and helping Winter escape would end in their public executions, like Lavana had threatened. But a twist of irony had spared their lives. His father had been transferred to a lumber sector years ago. When Cinder's call for revolution broadcast, the civilians rioted, imprisoning all of their guards and the guards' families. By the time Lavana's order to have them killed had come through, Jason's parents were no longer under her domain. The lumber sector, it turned out, was the same one where Winter had been poisoned. He hadn't seen them yet, as all guards were waiting to be granted trials under the new regime. 
most would be offered a chance to swear fealty to Queen Celine and join the new royal guard she was building. He knew his father, a good man who had long suffered under Lavana's thumb, would be happy at the change. Jason himself was nervous to be reunited with his family. After years of pushing everyone he loved away, it was difficult to imagine a life in which he was free to care for people without fear of them becoming pawns to be used against him. He knew they would love to see Winter again, too, who had been like a part of their family growing up. But not like this. Seeing her like this would break their hearts. Seeing her like this, Winter whimpered, a pathetic sound like that of a dying animal. Jason jumped to his feet and settled a hand on her shoulder in what he hoped was a comforting gesture. She whipped her head back and forth a few times, her eyes jerking beneath her closed lids, but she didn't wake up. When she had settled down again, Jason breathed a heavy sigh. He wanted her to be better. He wanted this to be over. He wanted her to open his eyes and not thrash or bite or howl. He wanted her to look at him with recognition and happiness and that hint of mischief that had captured his heart long before she'd been the most beautiful girl on Luna. He pulled a coiled spring of hair away from her lips, brushing it back off her face. I love you, princess, he whispered, hovering over her for a long time, tracing the planes of her face and the curve of her lips and remembering how she had kissed him in the menagerie. She'd told him then that she loved him, and he hadn't been brave enough to say it back. But now, he placed one hand on the other side of her body, leaning in for balance. His heart was racing, and he felt like an idiot. If anyone saw him, they'd think he was one of Winter's creepy admirers. It would change nothing, every bit of logic told him so. A stupid, idealistic kiss could not put her mind back together. But... He had nothing to lose. Winter went on sleeping, her chest rising, falling, rising and falling and rising. Jason realized he was stalling, building up hope, but also erecting a wall around himself for when nothing happened, because nothing would happen. He leaned over, leaving a hint of space between them, and dug his fingers into the thin hospital blankets. I love you, Winter. I always have. He kissed her. One-sided as it was, it had little of the passion there'd been in the menagerie, but so much more hope, and a whole lot of foolishness. Pulling away, he swallowed hard and dared to open his eyes. Winter was staring at him. Jason snapped backward. Damn it, Winter. You, how long? He rubbed the back of his neck. Were you just pretending to be asleep? Winter stared up at him, a dreamy half-smile on her lips. Jason's pulse skittered at that look. His attention dipped back to her lips. Was it possible? When, princess? Hello, she said, her voice parched, but no less sweet than usual. Do you see the snow? His brow twitched. Snow? Winter peered up at the ceiling. Though her wrists were bound tight, she opened up a palm, like trying to catch something. It is more beautiful than I'd ever imagined, she whispered. I am the girl of ice and snow, and I think I'm very glad to meet you.
Disappointment tried to burrow into Jason's chest, but the walls he'd thrown up did their job, and it was repelled as quickly as it came. At least she wasn't trying to bite him. Hello, snow girl, he said, folding her fingers around an imaginary snowflake. I'm glad to meet you, too. Chapter 94 Still weak-legged, Cinder held on to Kai's arm as he guided her through Artemisia Palace for the first time since the insurrection. All around her, enormous windows and tiled walls glittered in the sunlight. It was so beautiful. She was having trouble believing it was hers. Her palace. Her kingdom. Her home. She wondered how long it would take before it felt real. Aiko had chosen her dress, a simple gown taken from Winter's wardrobe, and done her hair in some fancy updo. Cinder was afraid to move her head for fear it would all come tumbling down. She knew she was supposed to feel regal and powerful, but instead, she felt like a feeble girl playing dress-up. She drew strength from Kai's presence on one side and Aiko on the other, even though Aiko wouldn't stop reaching up and mucking with her hair. Cinder batted her away again. At least Aiko's arm was working again. Dr. Nandez had managed to return most of her body's functionality. But there was still a lot of damage to be repaired. As they turned a corner, she spotted her new personal guard, Liam Kinney, along with Kai's advisor, Contorin. Beside them were Audrey and Pearl. Cinder hesitated, her pulse speeding up. Cinder? She met Kai's gaze, his encouraging smile and felt her heart tumbling for another reason entirely. I know this is weird, he said, but I'm here if you need me. You won't need me, though. You're going to be great. Thanks, she murmured, fighting the urge to embrace him, to crawl into his arms and hide from the rest of the galaxy, maybe forever. Also, his voice lowered, you look beautiful. It was Aiko who responded. Thank you for noticing. Kai laughed, while Cinder, her thoughts fluttering in all different directions, ducked her head. Cinder limped along, making a point not to look at her stepfamily. When she was close enough, Contorin bowed to her. Diplomatic respect, Cinder thought, remembering all the many glares she'd received from this man since she'd first seen him at the annual ball. But when he raised his head, he was smiling. In fact, he seemed downright friendly. Your Majesty, he said, on behalf of the people of the Eastern Commonwealth, I want to thank you for all you've done and all you will do. Oh, um, yeah, anytime. With a difficult swallow, she dared to look at Audrey. Her stepmother's face had a gauntness about it. Her number of gray hairs had tripled these past weeks. There was a moment in which Cinder thought of a thousand things she could say to this woman, but none of them seemed important anymore. Audrey's gaze dropped to the floor. She and Pearl both lowered into uncomfortable curtsies. Your majesty, said Audrey, sounding like she was chewing on a bitter lemon. Beside her, Pearl also mumbled, almost unintelligibly. Your majesty? Iko snorted a derisive sound that Cinder hadn't even thought escorts were capable of making. Staring at the tops of Pearl's and Audrey's heads, she attempted to come up with a gracious response, something Kai would have said. Things a good queen would have done to ease the tension, 
to offer forgiveness. Instead, she turned away. Kinney fisted a hand against his chest, and Cinder gave him what she hoped was a regal nod, before Kai led her through a pair of double doors. She had asked him to find a neutral place to host this meeting, not the throne room that had seen so much blood, or the queen's solar, or wherever Lavana would have conducted such a thing. She entered into a conference room with an enormous marble table and two holograph nodes turned off. The room was already full. She gulped, the uncanny silence nearly pushing her back into the hallway. She recognized most of them, but her brain interface wasted no time in pulling up their profiles from the net database anyway. President Vargas of the American Republic, Prime Minister Cayman of the African Union, Queen Camilla of the United Kingdom, Governor General Williams of Australia, Prime Minister Bromstad of the European Federation, Dr. Nandez, the acclaimed cybernetic surgeon, and Nancy, the android that Cinder had fixed for Kai a long time ago. She had been brought to Luna to record this occasion for Earth's official records. Audrey and Pearl were escorted around the table, which left only Iko, Kai, Contorin, and Cinder herself, or Her Royal Majesty Queen Celine Channery Janali Blackburn of Luna. She wondered if it was all right for her to ask that everyone just call her Cinder. Before she could speak, the world's leaders rose to their feet and started to applaud. Cinder recoiled. One by one, they went around the room, bowing and curtsying in turn. Suddenly panicked, Cinder looked at Kai. He gave her a one-shouldered shrug, suggesting that, yeah, it's weird, but you get used to it. When the circle came around to him, he too pressed one hand to his chest and inclined his head, the best bow he could give while still supporting her with one arm. Thank you, she stammered, wondering if she should curtsy, but she couldn't perform a graceful curtsy on her best of days, and it would be disastrous with all her injuries. Instead, she held her cyborg hand out to them. Um, please be seated? The clapping had faded, but no one sat. Kai led Cinder to the head of the table and eased her into a seat. Only then did the others follow, Kai taking the seat to Cinder's right. Audrey and Pearl were sandwiched between Con Torin and President Vargas. They looked supremely uncomfortable. Um, thank you all for coming on such short notice, Cinder began. She tried folding her hands on top of the table, but that felt strange, so instead curled them in her lap. I'm sure you're all eager to return home. I'm so sorry to interrupt, said Queen Camilla, not looking at all sorry. But might I take this moment to say congratulations on the reclamation of your throne? Another fit of clapping started at the queen's words, and Cinder had the impression they weren't so much congratulating her on becoming a queen as they were congratulating themselves on no longer having to deal with Lavana. Thanks. Uh, thank you. I hope you'll understand that I, um... I hope you'll be patient with me. This is all new for me, and I'm not, I'm not really a queen. She glanced around the table at the eager, hopeful faces staring at her like she was some sort of hero, like she had done something great. Her gaze swept around the table, feeling more nervous and inadequate with every person she crossed, older, wiser, experienced, until Kai. As soon as he had her attention, he winked. Her stomach flipped. She turned away and squared her shoulders. 
I asked you here today because the relationship between Earth and Luna has been strained for a long time, and my first act as... She hesitated and moved her hands to the top of the table again, lacing her fingers together. A few gazes dropped to her cyborg prosthetic, but all tried to pretend they hadn't noticed. As my first act as queen of Luna, I want to forge a peaceful alliance with the Earthen Union. Even if it's only symbolic at first, I hope it will be the start of a fruitful and mutually beneficial political, um, she glanced at Kai. Relationship? He suggested. Relationship. She straightened her spine, hoping she didn't sound as stupid as she felt. Around her, though, the diplomats were nodding, all respect and agreement. I'm aware that a peaceful alliance will begin with all lunar military units being removed from Earth and soil, and I will try to ensure that the transition is completed as quickly as possible. A breath of relief washed over those gathered. In fact, Cinder continued, my understanding is that under Kai, the uh, Emperor Kai, uh, Kaito? She raised her eyebrows at him, realizing this was the first time she'd ever been expected to be formal in his presence. In response, Kai looked like he wanted to laugh. She glared at him. Under Emperor Kaito's instruction, she continued, some of those military units are already en route back to Luna. A round of nods, they had heard this already. She swallowed hard. Her wounds were starting to itch on top of the constant drug-dulled aching. She hoped that her first act of queen wouldn't be passing out. Luna will also continue to produce and distribute the letamosis antidote as it's necessary and our resources allow. As you know, the antidote was being obtained from ungifted lunars who had been forced into a permanent comatose state in order to have their blood extracted, which is a violation of their rights. I'm told it might be possible to manufacture lab-grown blood platelets to mimic those of the shell ungifted lunars, and I hope to redirect Luna's research efforts in that direction and find a solution that will be fair to everyone. Of course, all samples of the antidote that we already have in stock will be dispersed to Earth immediately. Nodding, smiles, relief, and gratitude. Cinder braced herself. That said, I do have a few requests to make of you. As the air of victory around the table gave way to masked patience and a hint of tension, Cinder tucked a strand of fallen hair behind her ear. I want to make clear that these requests are just that. Requests. Your answer won't change my mind about any of the promises I've made. This isn't a negotiation. She pulled herself closer to the table. First, she tried to hold eye contact with those around her, but found it impossible, her gaze sinking down to her hands while she spoke. For years, cyborgs have been treated as secondary citizens. She cleared her throat, feeling Kai's presence burning beside her. I experienced it firsthand growing up in the Commonwealth. Underage cyborgs are seen more as property than people, with hardly any more rights than androids. There's a prejudice surrounding us. That's because we've been given unnatural abilities, man-made abilities. We're a danger to society. But it isn't true. We just want acceptance like anybody else. And so my request is that all laws regarding cyborgs be re-examined, and we be given the same equality and basic rights as everybody else. 
Daring to look up, she saw more than one flushed face, and no one daring to make eye contact with her, the new cyborg queen of Luna. Except Kai, who looked ashamed to be included with the others. But despite his decision to stop the cyborg draft for letamosis testing, the Commonwealth continued to have many of the same injustices as the rest of the planet. Kai was the first to nod. The Commonwealth agrees to your request. These laws are unfair and antiquated. After another long silence, Queen Camilla cleared her throat. <clears> throat> the UK agrees as well. Uh, we will begin the re-examination of the laws in earnest upon my return. Prime Minister Bromstad bashfully admitted that he would need to set up a parliamentary vote before any changes could be made into law, as did the other republics. But there was a general agreement around the table. It was by no means a hearty agreement, Cinder could tell. And she tried to disguise how much this irked her. She knew that just because one cyborg had saved the world didn't mean they were ready to give up generations of prejudices. But Cinder hoped it was a start. Second, I ask that all restrictions on lunar emigration be removed. Lunar should be free to come and go between Earth as they please. I don't want Luna to feel like a prison to its citizens anymore. Likewise, once we're prepared for it, I will open Luna's ports to earthen travel and emigration, like it used to be when Luna first became a country and trade and travel were encouraged. I feel like it's the only way our two societies will begin to start trusting each other. As she spoke, she noticed many glances being passed between the other leaders. It was the Australian Governor General who dared to speak. While I understand your motives, how can we trust that the lunars who come into our countries won't? He hesitated. Manipulate you, said Cinder. Brainwash your people. Commit unspeakable crimes against humanity, knowing how easy it will be for them to get away with it. He flashed a wry smile. Exactly. I believe the Earthens and Lunars can coexist peacefully, said Cinder. We've seen it in Farafra and other northern African towns over the past decade, where close to 15% of the population is made up of lunar immigrants. They work together, they trust each other. 15%? said Africa's Prime Minister Cayman. I've never heard this statistic. They don't publicize it, but it didn't seem to be a secret, even to the Earthen locals. They had formed a mutually beneficial relationship. As lovely as that thought is, said Cayman, with all due respect, you are very young, your majesty. You may not be aware that there was a time when travel was encouraged between Earth and Luna. And in that time, we experienced episodes of mass brainwashing put upon our people, forced suicides, rapes, not only is it difficult to prove when a lunar has manipulated an earthen, but half the time we can't even tell a crime was committed. She stopped herself as her voice started to rise. I, of course, mean no disrespect to you, your majesty. No disrespect taken, said Cinder. I am, in fact, quite familiar with the massacre at New Haven 41 TE, the mindless marches of 18 TE, the highly publicized case of Roger versus Caprice in the Second Era, and, oh, about a thousand other notable examples of lunars exerting their gift on the people of Earth. Cayman looked taken aback. In fact, the whole table seemed more than a little surprised. Leaning forward, Cinder spoke very clearly. I have a computer in my brain, she said, 
So while I'm not going to tell you that I am the smartest or, by any means, the most experienced person in this room, I would suggest that no one use my youth to believe that I am also ignorant. Of course, said Cayman, newly tense. Forgive me, I meant no offense. Your concerns are legitimate, said Cinder. If I could offer you a solution, a promise that no earthen would ever be manipulated again, or would at least be given an opportunity to protect themselves against that manipulation, would you agree to my request? It would be worth considering, said President Vargas, and I for one am dying to know what this solution might be. Right, Cinder flicked her hand toward her stepmother. This is Lynn Audrey, a citizen of the Eastern Commonwealth. Audrey started, whipping her gaze around the table of very important people. Audrey's husband, a man named Lynn Garin, was an inventor who specialized in android systems and cybernetics. He's deceased now, but when he was alive, he invented a device. It attaches to a person's nervous system and can protect them from being manipulated by the lunar gift. Lavana learned of this device recently and did her best to have all patents and blueprints concerning the device destroyed even going so far as to have Audrey, the rightful owner of the technology, imprisoned here on Luna. Audrey had gone pale. I'm sorry, but I don't know anything about it. This device, if it ever existed, is long gone. Well, it's sort of long gone, interrupted Cinder. As far as I know, there were only two working prototypes. One was an earthen woman named Michelle Benoit, who was killed during the attacks in Paris. The other is inside me. She turned to Dr. Nandez, whose interest seemed piqued for the first time since the meeting had started. Leaning forward, the doctor cupped her chin in one hand. On your axis vertebra, she said. I saw it on your holograph, but I didn't know what it was. Cinder nodded. I hope you'll tell me that the device can be safely removed and the hardware reproduced. If we can copy it, there could come a time when everyone who wants to avoid bioelectrical manipulation would have the power to do so. A rustle of disbelief. Is that possible? Absolutely, said Cinder. It worked on me, and it worked on Michel Benoit. I hate to be pessimistic, said Dr. Nandez, but your installed device appeared to have severe damage. Though it's possible we could use it to create a blueprint for the hardware, I have to assume that any programming has been damaged beyond repair. If Queen Lavana really did have the data destroyed, I don't know how easily it can be reproduced. You're right, mine was destroyed. Cinder risked a glance at Audrey and Pearl, who were frowning as they tried to follow the conversation. Luckily, Lynn Garin created a backup for the device's internal software. He was clever enough to hide it in an obscure place where no one would think to look for it. Do you know Lynn Gea? She startled at the formal greeting. Audrey shook her head. He hid it inside the personality chip of a lowly serve 9.2. Iko squeaked. Redness crept into Audrey's cheeks, dawning comprehension and horror. Oh, but I, but the android, I didn't know she was valuable. Cinder smiled wryly. I know. Audrey had the android in question dismantled and sold off as spare parts. There was more than one gasp around the table, and a lot of furious glances passed toward Audrey and Pearl. Everything, Cinder added, except the faulty personality chip that no one else wanted. No one, 
except Lynn Garen. And me. She nodded at Aiko. The chip is inside my escort droid friend here. And I have no doubt we'll be able to extract the information stored there. Huh, said Aiko, pressing her finger into her temple. I remember when he uploaded those files. I thought they were for malware protection. Of course, said Cinder. Lynn Audrey is the owner of the patent and the technology, so it's fair she be compensated. I expect you can work out some sort of royalty from the manufacturing of the device. A round of agreement rumbled through the table, all but Audrey. Royalty? Her gaze darted to Pearl, then back to Cinder. How, how much of a royalty? Aiko lowered her hand, grumbling. Too much. Cinder bit back a smile. That's between you and the government entities you're selling it to. Leaning across the table, she fixed a glare on her stepmother. I suggest you don't get greedy. Scolded, Audrey sank back in her chair. But there was a brightness in her eye, as someone across the table mentioned the potential market for such a device. Millions, possibly billions, could be reproduced over the next decade. Audrey reached for her daughter's hand. Pearl glanced at her mother, and she, too, seemed to finally understand. Lynn Garen's device had the potential to make them very, very wealthy. Cinder realized, with some surprise, that she didn't feel as bitter about it as she thought she would. Let Audrey have her riches and her royalties, her daughter and her life. After this day, Cinder intended to never think of either of them again. Her only regret was that Peony was here to see it. She would never play dress-up with Iko in the royal closets. Her eyes wouldn't sparkle as Cinder put on her crown for the first time. She had never met Kai, who had become so much more to Cinder than her prince or her emperor, or an impossible dream. That brings me to my final request, Cinder said, determined to get through this meeting before any emotions, good or bad, overwhelmed her. This one relates to only two of you, President Vargas and Governor General Williams. Cinder adjusted herself in her chair. It involves a man named Carswell Thorne. Chapter 95 The nurse kept apologizing as she escorted Cress from the med clinic to the palace. Far from being fully healed, Cress had to be transported on a maglev chair, which was the oddest floating contraption she'd ever seen. Not quite a gurney, but not a wheelchair either. For the moment in which Cress let her imagination carry her away, she'd been an exotic first-era princess, being carried around on a lavish throne on the shoulders of very strong men. Then the nurse had launched into her apologies again, destroying the daydream. The clinic was so overcrowded, she explained. The doctor spread so thin, and now that Cress was out of critical status, Cress didn't mind the change. She was glad to be out of the sterile clinic. Though Cress had only been brought out of suspended animation four hours ago, she'd already seen Iko, Scarlet, Wolf, and even a weary Jason, who told her of their victory and how Cinder had signed the Treaty of Bremen, and how the shells had been awakened, and how researchers were figuring out the best way to get them adjusted to life on Luna, while also meeting Earth's antidote needs. It left Cress's head spinning. At the top of her thoughts, however, always... Always was Thorn. He hadn't been there. 
no one had even mentioned his name. And Cress felt like they were all holding their breath, wanting to say something, but waiting, uncertain. She'd shot off two of his fingers. It may have been a minor injury compared with what she and Cinder had suffered, but still, she had done it, of her own will and volition. The nurse guided her into a familiar guest wing. This is where she had run into Kai. Here we are, said the nurse, opening a door. If you need anything at all, I'm fine. Cress used the controls on the chair's arm to guide it into the room. A canopied bed was covered in shining silks. The stone floors were polished to a glossy finish. The window looked out on some of the palace's flowering gardens, full of gazebos and statues. Thank you. We've taken care to make sure you're close to your friends, said the woman. Mr. Kesley and Miss Benoit are two doors down on the left, and Emperor Kaito is around the corner. Mr. Thorne is staying across the hall. Cress spun her chair around. Her door was still open, and she could see Thorne's closed door from where she sat. He is? Would you like me to see if he's in? Cress flushed. Oh, no, that's all right. Thank you. Then I should be getting back to the clinic. Would you like to be helped into bed before I go? No, I think I'm going to sit and enjoy the view for a while. Thank you. The nurse left, shutting the door behind her. Cress took in a deep breath. The fine guest quarters smelled of lemon cleaner and a bouquet of white lilacs that sat on a desk. They were already wilting, though, and Cress wondered how long they'd been there. Perhaps this room had been set up for someone else perhaps one of the earthen diplomats who had already gone home. Mr. Thorne is staying across the hall. She stared at the door, willing him to appear. Her stomach was throbbing where Thorne had stabbed her when he'd been under Lavana's control. She pressed her fingers against the bandages over her stitches, trying to ease the ache. She wondered if she should have asked the nurse to leave her some pain medicine. She took in a deep breath, feeling the sting of her ribs as her lungs pressed against them. She would be brave. She would be heroic. She would make her own destiny. She urged her floating chair to the door and yanked it open. Thorne stood in the hallway. He jumped, clasping his hands behind his back, a rigidly formal stance. He was clean-shaven with his hair neatly combed, and he was wearing brand new clothes, a blue-collared shirt rolled to the elbows and khaki pants tucked into brown boots. Cress squeezed herself against the back of the chair, feeling inadequate. Though she'd showered away the suspension tank's goop, she still wore the paper-thin gown from the clinic and hadn't even had a chance to comb her hair. Captain, she breathed. Sorry, he said, clicking his heels. Were you leaving? No, I, I thought I'd come see you. Thorne looked caught off guard, but then an edge of relief turned up one side of his mouth. He leaned down to place his hands on her armrests. His right hand was cocooned in a cast. You're supposed to be resting, he said, pushing her backward and shutting the door with his foot. He took her back to the window, then glanced around. What can I get you? A port screen? A masseuse? Whiskey on the rocks? She couldn't take her eyes off him. Even knowing he was alive, she hadn't completely believed it until then. You look, she couldn't finish. Her eyes started to water. A grin in expectation of a compliment quickly turned to panic. Oh, hey, what are you doing that for? 
he crouched in front of her. I don't think crying will feel very good in your condition. She bit her lip, hard. He was right. Already her warbling breaths were making her abdomen throb. She forced the tears to subside. Thorn took her hands, snaking his cast beneath her fingers. His skin looked tan and rugged against hers. I'm sorry, he said. I wanted to be there when they brought you out of the tank, but I was in a meeting when Scarlet calmed to tell me, and I couldn't leave, and I thought, I didn't know. He exhaled, a frustrated set to his mouth. A meeting? Cress said, not sure if this explanation made her feel better or worse. His expression brightened. You'll never believe this. President Vargas himself wanted to meet me, the actual president of the American Republic. Guess what he said? She considered, he's giving you a medal of honor for your bravery? Close enough, Thorne's blue eyes gleamed. He's giving me the rampion. Her eyes widened. Launching to his feet, Thorne started to pace. Well, I mean, he's leasing me, the rampion, but I can start making payments to purchase it from the military. Cinder asked him to pardon me if I promised not to steal anymore, yada yada. And she recommended me and my crew to head the efforts of distributing the letamosis antidote. But I need a ship to do it, which is why President Vargas made the deal. You should have seen how unhappy he looked about it. I don't think he's my biggest fan, but he still did it. Cress clapped. I'm so happy for you. Can you imagine me in a legitimate job? And a job that's helping people, she beamed. I can imagine it very easily. I'm sure you're the only one. He stopped pacing long enough to grin at her. Warmth flooded her face, and she looked down, noticing his cast again. He would have to retrain himself how to fly with his injuries. I'm, I'm sorry about your hand, she stammered. Don't, he said quickly, as if he'd been expecting this apology. Scarlet and I are gonna start a missing fingers club. We might let Cinder be an honorary member. Sinking onto the edge of the bed, he stared at his cast, twisting it in the light. Plus, I'm thinking of getting some cyborg replacements. You know how Cinder's hand does all sorts of tricks? I thought it might be nice to always have a toothpick handy. Or maybe a comb? He sounded distracted, like his words and thoughts weren't lining up with each other. When he dared to look up again, there was anxiety behind his eyes. I'm sorry too, Chris. I, I nearly killed you and Levana almost killed me. His jaw flexed. I was the one holding the knife. I felt it. I felt it happening and there was nothing I could do. There was nothing you could do, she agreed. Settling his elbows on his knees, he leaned over his head hanging between his shoulders. No, I know. He dragged his good hand through his hair. I know logically that it was her, not me, but... Cress, he sighed. I will have nightmares about that moment for the rest of my life. It wasn't your fault. Cress, that's not... Massaging the back of his neck, he peered up at her, but the look was so intense, she had trouble holding it. Her blush deepened. I... He planted his hands on his knees, bracing himself. Will you stay on my crew? Her thoughts scattered. Your crew? I know, 
he cleared his throat. You've spent your entire life in space removed from civilization. I understand if you say no, if you want to stay here on Luna, or even... Even if you want me to take you to Earth, I'm sure you could stay with Kai for a while, who, you know, lives in a palace. Thorne's expression darkened, which is probably really tempting compared with the cargo ship I'm offering. He started to pace again. The Wolf and Scarlet are staying on, just temporarily until the disease is under control. And I had an idea. This assignment will take us all over the Republic. Not that we'll be doing much sightseeing, but there'll be, um, forests and mountains and all sorts of things. And when we're done, if there's anywhere you want to go back to, we could do that and stay for a while. Or I could take you anywhere, anywhere you want to see. His pacing was making her dizzy. You're offering me a job? Yeah, no, he hesitated. I mean, sort of. You know, this went a lot smoother when I practiced last night. She shut one eye, squinting. Captain, I'm still on a lot of medication, and I'm not sure I'm following you. He took in the hospital gown and hovering chair, as if he'd forgotten about them. Spades, I am bad at this, aren't I? You want to lie down? You should lie down. Without waiting for a response, he swept an arm beneath her knees and lifted her out of the chair, gentle, as if he were picking up a priceless dream doll. She buried a hiss of pain in her throat as he carried her to the bed. Better, he said, easing her on top of the covers. Better, she admitted, but he didn't let go. And he was awfully close when she met his eyes. Chris, look, I'm obviously no good at this. At least not when it's, when it's you. He seemed frustrated. His fingers curled, gathering up the flimsy material of the hospital gown. But I am good at this. He leaned closer, and his lips found hers, pressing her into the soft pillows. She gasped and dug her fingers into his shirt, afraid he would pull away before she could memorize this moment. But he didn't pull away, and Cress gradually dared to kiss him back. The mattress shifted, Thorn bringing a knee up to keep from crushing her. His cast brushed her hip, clumsy at first, but less so when he raised it to the side of her face to trace his bare thumb against her jaw. And his lips followed, to her chin, her neck, the dip of her clavicle, her body became liquid, and she thought if they could bottle him, he would make the best pain medication. Thorne stopped kissing her, but she could still feel the brush of his hair against her jaw, the warmth of his breath on her shoulder. Twenty-three, he said. Hmm? She opened her dazed eyes. Thorne pulled back, looking guilty and worried, which made some sort of euphoria fade away. You asked me how many times I'd told a girl I loved her. I've been trying to remember them all, and I'm pretty sure the answer is 23. She blinked a slow, fluttering stare. Her lips pursed in a question that took a while to form. Including the lunar girl who kissed you? His brow furrowed. Are we counting her? You said it, didn't you? His gaze darted to the side. 24. Cress gaped. 24 girls. She didn't even know 24 people. Why are you telling me this? Because I need you to know I never meant it. 
I said it because I thought that's what you're supposed to say. But it didn't mean anything. And it's different with you. This is the first time I've been scared. Scared you'll change your mind. Scared I'll screw it up. Aces, Chris, I'm terrified of you. Her stomach fluttered. He didn't look terrified. Here's the thing, Thorn crawled over her legs and lay down beside her, boots and all. You deserve better than some thief who's going to end up in jail again. Everyone knows it, even I know it. But you seem determined to believe I'm actually a decent guy who's halfway worthy of you. So it scares me most, he twisted a lock of her hair between his fingers, and that someday even you will realize that you can do better. Thorn, not to worry, he kissed the lock of hair. I am a criminal mastermind, and I have a plan. Clearing his throat, he started to check off things in the air. First, get a legitimate job. Check. Legally buy my ship. In progress. Prove that I'm hero material by helping Cinder save the world. Oh, wait, I did that already, he winked. Oh, and I have to stop stealing things, but that's probably a given. So... I figure by the time you realize how much I don't deserve you, I might kind of deserve you. His grin turned smug. And that's how that speech was supposed to go. That was a good speech, she said. I know. Scooting closer, he kissed her shoulder. Goosebumps erupted down her arm. Captain? Cress. She couldn't not say it, although she realized he was right. It was sort of scary, much scarier than it had been the first time she'd told him out in the desert. It was different now. It was real. I'm in love with you. He chuckled. I should hope so after all that. He leaned forward and pressed a kiss against her temple. And I love you too. Chapter 96 Winter picked up a stick from the ground and tossed it toward the protective fence around the enclosure. But the ghost Ryu just tilted his head to one side. Sighing, she dropped her hands into her lap. Her fits still came and went, but she'd been deemed lucid enough that the doctors allowed her to make the decision. Would she rather remain in the med clinic, where she could be restrained when her outbursts came, or... Would she rather be outfitted with shock bracelets that could incapacitate her when needed? She had chosen this imaginary freedom, thinking of Ryu and how his own collar would never let him leave the enclosure that must have seemed very escapable at first. Jason hated the idea. He had argued that her mind was fragile enough without fear of random shocks. But Winter had needed to get out of the clinic. She had needed to get away from the nightmares that haunted her. She came to the menagerie often since her release, finding it one of the few serene places in a city that was fluttering with talk of reconstruction and political change. This was all very important, of course. She had always wanted her country to be a place where the people could speak their mind and be treated fairly, where people were given choices over the life they wanted to live. But the talk of it made her head hurt. When the world started to spin out of control, she found it best to remove herself to somewhere peaceful and solitary, where she couldn't hurt anyone but herself. The delusions were no longer constant like they had been in the days following the battle, although her mind still tricked her into seeing her stepmother's shadow in the palace, waiting with a sharpened knife and cruelly kind words. 
or the flash of Amory's eyes following her down the corridors. Too often she smelled the blood dripping down the walls. The first time she'd come to the menagerie, Ryu's ghost had been waiting for her. In the uncertainty of the revolution, the gamekeepers had run away and had yet to be found. The animals had been hungry and restless, and Winter had spent the whole day hunting down the storage rooms where the food was kept, cleaning out the cages, and turning the menagerie back into the sanctuary she'd always known it to be. When Jason had come looking for her, he conscripted servants to help too. Staying busy helped. It was not a cure, but it helped. As far as anyone cared, she was the gamekeeper now, though everyone still called her princess and pretended she didn't smell like manure. Ryu laid his head in Winter's lap and she stroked him between the ears, this sad ghost who wouldn't play fetch anymore. Princess. Ryu evaporated. Jason was leaning against the enclosure wall, not far from where he'd faked her murder, where she'd kissed him and he'd kissed her back. With that memory, Winter was submerged, in water and ice, in hot and cold. She shivered. Jason's brow twitched with concern, but she stuffed the memory down. Not a hallucination, just a normal fantasy, like a normal girl might have when she had a normal crush on her best friend. You don't have to call me that, you know, she said, brushing her hair back from her shoulders. There was a time when you called me Winter. He leaned his elbows on the enclosure wall. There was also a time when I could come visit you without feeling like I was supposed to toss breadcrumbs to earn your favor. Breadcrumbs? Do I look like a goose? He tilted his head to the side. You don't look like an arctic wolf either, but that's what the plaque tells me I'm looking at. Winter leaned back on her hands. I will not play fetch, she said. But I might yowl if you ask nicely. He grinned. I've heard your yowl. It's not very wolf-like either. I've been practicing. You won't bite me if I come in there, will you? I make no guarantees. Jason hopped over the rail and came to sit beside her. She raised an eyebrow. You don't look like an arctic wolf either. I also don't howl, he considered. Though I might play fetch, depending on the prize. The prize is another game of fetch. You drive a hard bargain. Her lips curled upward, but when it seemed like Jason was going to return the smile, he looked away. You and I have had a request from Saint Celine. Now that the treaty's signed, she wants to start discussing trade agreements between Luna and Earth, along with open communication, travel, access to Earth and media, stuff like that. Ryu bumped his head between Winter's shoulder blades. Pulling back her arm, she tried to scratch under his ear, but as soon as she touched him, he faded away. Jason was watching her. The wolf again? Don't worry, he's forgiven you. He frowned. What can we do to help Celine with her politics? Well, given that you're so regrettably charming and you did such a great job getting the wolf soldiers to join us and everyone likes you so much, so many compliments in a row. I feel like I must be walking into a trap. Exactly. Cinder thinks you might make a good ambassador. Her first ambassador. She cocked her head to the side. What would I have to do? I'm not sure. Go to Earth? Have dinner with fancy people? Show them we lunars aren't all monsters? She grinned, feeling wolfish. I told her I would ask, Jason added. But you're not obligated to say yes. 
You need to take care of yourself first. Would you be with me? Of course. He crossed one ankle over the other. But you could say no, and I'll be with you then, too. I'm done serving everyone else. He leaned back onto his elbows. Who knows? Maybe someday I'll take up studying to be a doctor again. But until then, I'm your guard to do with as you will. So it will be like playing the princess and the guard, she said, a game they played when they were kids. She'd act out a much bossier version of herself while Jason would model himself after their fathers, all stoic and serious and scrambling to do her bidding. When Winter ran out of commands to give him, they would pretend there were murderers and kidnappers coming for the princess, and he would protect her from them. Jason grinned, hopefully with fewer kidnappings. She pressed her cheek against his shoulder. If Cinder wishes it, I would be honored to charm the people of Earth. I had a feeling you'd say that. Lying all the way back, he rubbed a hand over his forehead. Ryu howled, crying his soul up to the menagerie's vine-covered glass ceiling. He was not usually so restless. Maybe it was Jason's presence. Maybe Ryu was trying to speak to her. Maybe this was her own insanity, signifying nothing. Winter started to speak, but hesitated. She looked down at Jason, but he had his hand covering his eyes. She wondered if he'd been sleeping much lately. Dr. Nandez says she may have a prototype of Cinder's device ready within the next week. Jason's hand lifted. Already? She doesn't know yet if it will work. She needs a test subject first. Princess, I've already volunteered. You can try to talk me out of it, but I'm fully prepared to ignore you. Jaw tensing, Jason sat up again. The test subject? We don't know what the side effects will be. We don't know if it will even work. Let someone else try it first. I want to do it. I am one of the most severe cases of lunar sickness to date. She lost her fingers in the wolf's fur. But it occurred to me that if it works, I won't see Ryu again. She smiled sadly. And what if, what if people don't like me anymore? Jason shook his head. They don't like you because you're crazy. They like you because, she waited, because you were good to them when no one else was. Because you care. This device won't change who you are. You want me to be fixed, don't you? Jason drew back as if she'd thrown something at him. You're not broken. Her vision began to blur. Yes, Jason. I am. No, you're, he growled, a throaty, frustrated sound that made her feel giddy. Look, I would love to not have to worry about you anymore. That you'll hurt yourself or that someone will take advantage of you. But you're not, you're, I'm delusional and crazy and damaged. I've known it a long time. We both have. Scarlet tells me all the time. You're perfect, he said, finishing his thought as if she hadn't interrupted. I don't care if you see dead wolves or turn into a living ice sculpture when you're having a bad day. I don't care if I have an imprint of your teeth on my shoulder. I don't care if you're fixed. He spat the word like it tasted bad. I want you to be safe and happy, that's all. Winter fluttered her lashes at him, and he turned away. Don't look at me like that. I want to be the test subject, she reached for his hand. I'll be safe and happy when I'm no longer afraid of my own mind. Pressing his lips into a thin line, Jason nodded, slowly. 
I just don't like the idea of you going first, he grumbled. Jason? He met her gaze again. Winter scooted closer and linked her arm with his. You think I'm perfect? He didn't look away, didn't look bashful or even nervous, just stared at her like she'd asked him if Luna orbited the Earth. Then he leaned over and brushed a kiss against her forehead. Just sort of, he said. You know, on a good day. Chapter 97 All of them? Cinder smiled at Iko's exuberance. She had already gotten more joy out of the way Iko was beaming at the rows and rows and rows of dresses than she ever would have gotten from the dresses themselves. Every last one, said Cinder. I never want to look at them again. She had already spent more time surrounded by Lavana than she'd intended. Her perfume, her gowns, her jewelry. She had no interest in her aunt's wardrobe. But Iko did, so Iko could have them all. She had never seen Iko so pleased, not even when Thorne had brought her that escort droid body he'd found in the desert, not even when the shipment from Earth had finally arrived with the spare parts to fix her near-destroyed body. Cinder had told her that with so much damage, it would be more cost-effective to install her personality chip into a brand new body. She could have had her pick of any model she wanted, but Iko had refused. She had grown attached to this one, she'd said, and besides, None of her friends' bodies were disposable, so why should hers be? Cinder had no argument for that. The only upgrade Iko had requested was a pair of brand new eyes that changed colors based on her moods. Today, her eyes were sunburst yellow. Happy, happy, happy. You won't mind seeing them on me, will you? Asked Iko, pulling a slinky orange piece off its hanger and holding it against her chest. Not if they make you that happy. Where will I wear them? Before Cinder could answer, she waved her hand. Never mind, where wouldn't I wear them? Hanging the slinky dress back up, Iko scanned the wardrobe again. Her eyes darkened. More buttercup now, with a tinge of lime around the edges. I think I feel guilty. Guilty? Huffing, Iko planted her hands on her hips. Her concern lasted for a few moments before she beamed again. I know. I'll choose my 10 favorites and sell the rest on escort droid costume feeds. We can use the proceeds to build schools in the outer sectors. Or something charitable like that. Fingering a fine lace sleeve, she glanced at Cinder. What do you think? If Cinder's eyes reflected her moods, they would have been sapphire blue proud. I think that's a great idea. Iko beamed and started working her way through the racks again, narrowing down her favorites while Cinder turned to face her reflection in the mirror that had been loaned to her from one of the Earthen spaceships. She was still getting used to seeing herself look so queenly. Her own gown was brand new. Although she had intended to wear one of Winter's dresses again, a few Artemisian seamstresses had pleaded to be allowed to design her coronation dress, proclaiming what an honor it would be. Cinder hadn't even known she had expectations until the dress surpassed them. Done up in Luna's official colors of white, red, and black, the gown was made of more material than she'd ever seen in her life. The heavy white skirt draped around her like a bell, with a massive train that would follow her down the long, long aisle. Red and black gems were beaded along the skirt's hem and woven through the bodice. 
A modest neckline with capped sleeves fit her perfectly. She had expected the seamstresses to also make gloves to cover her cyborg hand, but they didn't. No gloves, one of the seamstresses said when she asked, and no veil. A knock drew her attention to the door, and the guard, Kinney, entered. Your Majesty, he greeted. His respectful expression turned sour as he addressed Iko. Madam Counselor. Iko's eyes went coppery with pride at her new title, even though she met the guard with a sour glare of her own. Yes, Kinney, said Cinder. The captain and his crew are requesting an audience. Ha! Thorne's voice carried from the corridor. I told you I could get him to call me the captain. Cinder rolled her eyes. Let them in. They poured in before Kinney could admit them, all grinning and dressed formally for the occasion. Even Wolf was wearing a suit, though Cinder couldn't imagine it had been easy to find one to fit his altered body on such short notice. His red shirt matched Scarlet's stunning red dress, the fabric clashing spectacularly with her hair. Thorne was in a tuxedo and bow tie. He came in pushing Cress along on her floating contraption. Cinder had heard that her wounds were healing well and she was expected to be walking in short bursts by the end of the week. She was wearing one of Winter's gauzy yellow dresses, hemmed to fit her. Jason was in his guard uniform, but had replaced the normal shoulder armor with dashing epaulets, making him almost prince-like beside Winter, who was even more breathtaking than usual in a white gown that would have looked plain on anyone else. Kai followed the group in a black dress shirt with a mandarin collar. He was carrying a silver platter topped with a round, single-tiered cake, covered in swirls of pale yellow frosting. Cinder knew immediately that it wasn't from the royal pastry chefs, whose creations were almost too immaculate to touch. This cake, with its messy frosting and lack of decoration, was remarkably unpretentious. With a bow, the guard slipped out the door. Iko stuck her tongue out at his retreating back. What's going on, said Cinder. The coronation starts in 20 minutes. You should all be seated by now. It was my idea, said Iko, bouncing on her toes. I knew you'd be nervous, so I thought we'd have a celebration first. And you made a cake? Scarlet did, said Thorne. Scarlet brushed her hair off her shoulder. It's a lemon cake, my grandmother's special recipe, but she her gaze swooped down Cinder's dress. You might want to wait until after the coronation so you don't get frosting all over yourself. Winter snorted and grabbed the tray away from Kai. Let's not be cruel. One should never save cake for later when it can be eaten now. She slid the cake onto a priceless silk divan. I've never had cake before, said Cress, drawing plenty of surprised looks. She was holding Thorne's hand, but for once, she didn't shrink closer to him. Even being the center of attention, Iko crossed her arms. Can we please not start listing all the wonderful, marvelous food we've never had? That settles it then, said Thorne. Who brought the silverware? No one had, so Jason offered his dagger instead. They took turns cutting off bite-sized chunks of cake and frosting and eating it with their fingers until the cake resembled little more than the crater-pocked surface of the moon. Naturally, Cinder got some on her gown, a smear of yellow frosting on the enormous skirt. She was mortified until Iko adjusted the skirt so the folds would hide it. It was inevitable, Iko said with a wink. It's part of your charm. Cinder started to laugh. 
but was startled into silence by a sudden hiccup in her chest. She looked around at the smiles and the arms draped over shoulders and winter daintily licking buttercream from her fingers. At the homemade cake, a gathering of friends, a celebration for her. They were silly things to be floored by, but she couldn't help it. She'd never had these things before. Gratitude swelled behind her sternum, and though she was still nervous, still terrified, she realized that she felt lighter than she had in days. Your Majesty, she looked up. Kinney had returned. It's time. Cinder gulped and stood, her heart thumping. The festive mood turned serious. Wolf, who had been holding the knife last, gobbled down a few extra bites before passing the knife back to Jason. Jason took one look at the frosting and crumb-covered blade and stuck it back into the cake for safekeeping. I'm ready, said Cinder. Breathing became difficult as the dress constricted against her stomach. I am ready, aren't I? Hold on, Iko turned Cinder to face her. Smile, Cinder gave her a nervous smile, and Iko nodded proudly. Nothing in your teeth. I'd say you're ready. Her friends gathered around her, pulling her into embrace after embrace, until she reached Kai, who was wrapping his arms around her waist and kissed her. He tasted like lemon frosting. Thorn whistled. Iko swooned. The kiss ended too quickly. What was that for? Cinder whispered against him. Kai scooped his arms around her shoulders and led her out of the queen's chambers. I was just thinking about the good future, he said the one with you in it. The official coronation of Queen Celine Channery Janali Blackburn was in some ways an intimate affair, and in others, an intergalactic sensation. Cinder had held a lottery for tickets, so all of Lunar sectors would be represented, and all the guests combined made for a crowd a few hundred strong which barely filled up half the seats that had been set out for Lavana and Kai's ceremony a few weeks prior. The footage was broadcast, not only to every sector on Luna, but also to all Earthen news feeds that chose to run it. It became the most viewed net feed of the third era. While Cinder walked down the endless black carpeted aisle, she tried not to think of all the people in the universe who were watching her. She tried not to wonder whether they were judging her or admiring her, afraid of her or impressed by her. She tried not to guess how many saw her as a lost princess or a pathetic cyborg, a vigilante or a criminal, a revolutionary or a lowly mechanic that had gotten lucky. She tried not to think about the smear of yellow frosting on her priceless gown. Kai and Winter stood at the altar encased in the light of glowing orbs, Winter holding the queen's crown and Kai a ceremonial scepter. Together, they represented how both Earth and Luna would accept her right to rule. The rest of her friends were in their reserved seats in the front row. Thorn on the aisle held out his hand as Cinder passed. She snorted and accepted the high five before floating up the stairs. Winter winked at her. Well done, Cinder friend. You didn't trip. The hard part is over. Kai gave a smile meant for only Cinder, even though the entire universe was watching. She's right, that really is the hard part. Thank the stars, Cinder whispered back. Now, let's get this over with. Taking in a long, shaky breath, 
she turned to face her kingdom. The blood had been scrubbed from the throne room floor, but the room was still a disaster. Toppled chairs and broken rails, cracked tiles and wall panels where bullets had hit them. Even the throne itself had a fracture in the stone from when Cinder had tried to shoot Lavana. It smelled of chemicals and bleach from the cleaning. The horrors of the rebellion were starting to fade, not perhaps for those who had lost friends and family. And Cinder knew there was still so much to be done in order for Luna to pick up the pieces of Lavana's rule. But they were eager to start picking up those pieces right away. She'd begun compiling councils made up of both members from the Artemisian court and nominated citizens from the outer sectors to begin bridging the gap between the classes and figuring out how best to reallocate funds and labor. Already the families and the thaumaturges were starting to fight against her, but that was all right. It would take time, but they would adjust. She'd been sitting on her throne in the silent, chemical-filled air for what could have been hours, watching as Earth turned above the horizon. Artemisia was beautiful, but she found herself longing to go home. Or perhaps she was longing to have a home to go back to at all. It wasn't here, in this lush, fabricated city that meant nothing to her. The doors opened. Kai poked his head in, and Cinder tensed, feeling guilted to be caught on the throne, even if it was her throne, all alone in the darkness. There you are, he said. Sorry, she said. I'm kind of hiding. Would you believe that when you're royalty, it is really difficult to find a moment of privacy? Smirking, Kai shut the door behind him. He kept a hand behind his back as he came toward her. Might I suggest getting yourself a hooded sweatshirt? It makes a surprisingly adequate disguise. He paused when he spotted Earth over the balcony, all beautiful and enormous in the dark sky. That's quite a view. Cinder nodded. Not to justify what Lavana did, but I can kind of understand why she wanted it so much. When Kai said nothing, she slid her gaze back to him, and she knew what he'd come there to say. Her heart sank. You're leaving, aren't you? He turned away from the view. In two days, two earthen days, he frowned apologetically. I've been gone for too long already. She tried to smother the despair that knocked into her. Kai would be gone. Thorn, Cress, Wolf, and Scarlet had already left, and Winter and Jason would be leaving on their first ambassadorial trip in the next few days. And then she would be alone. Well, she and Iko would be alone. She'd been expecting it. She had known he couldn't stay forever. He had his own country to rule. Right, she said, feigning confidence. I understand. You've been a huge help. You and Con Darren. Is, is he leaving too? Kai grimaced. He is. I'm sorry. No, you, you have to go home. Of course you do. You should come visit, he said, speaking fast. Soon. It would be symbolic, I think, of the new alliance. He trailed off and scratched behind his neck, one hand still hidden. Or I could make up a political dilemma we need to work through, if that would help. Cinder forced a smile. I'd like to come visit. I'm, Aiko and I are going to miss you. I think you'll find that being a queen doesn't leave a whole lot of time for being lonely. We'll see about that. 
Suddenly, it felt awkward to be sitting on her throne while Kai stood below her. She stood and crossed her arms over her chest, drifting toward the balcony ledge. Anxiety was already growing inside her. Two days. Two more days and he'll be gone. There was so much she wanted to say to him, and two days wasn't enough time to get it all out, especially when all the words remained locked up in her throat. It's strange, Kai said, joining her on the glass overhang, his gaze fixed on Earth again. I spent all that time trying to avoid a marriage alliance with Luna. And now that the treaty is signed and the war is over, somehow a marriage alliance doesn't sound so bad. Her heart flipped. Kai's gaze danced back to her, and then he was smiling in a way that was both bashful and confident. The same smile he'd given her the day they'd met in the marketplace. After a long, awkward moment, he laughed. You really can't blush, can you? A mix of relief and disappointment rolled through her, and she tucked her hands under her arms to hide their shaking. That wasn't nice, only if you think I didn't mean it. Her brow twitched. Here, I have something for you. It had better not be an engagement ring. He paused, his lips puckering as if the thought hadn't occurred to him, and he was regretting it. Or gloves, added Cinder. That didn't work out too well last time. Grinning, Kai took a step closer to her and dropped to one knee. Her eyes widened. Cinder? Her heart thumped. Wait, I've been waiting a long time to give this to you. Kai! With an expression as serious as politics, he pulled his hand from behind his back. In it was cupped a small metal foot, frayed wires sticking up from the cavity and the joints packed with grease. Cinder released her breath, then started to laugh. You, <laughs> Are you terribly disappointed? Because I'm sure Luna has some great jewelry stores if you wanted me to- Shut up, she said, taking the foot. She turned it over in her palms, shaking her head. I keep trying to get rid of this thing, but somehow it keeps finding its way back to me. What made you keep it? It occurred to me that if I could find the cyborg that fits this foot, it must be a sign we were meant to be together. He twisted his lips to one side, but then I realized it would probably fit an eight-year-old. Eleven, actually. Close enough, he hesitated. Honestly, I guess it was the only thing I had to connect me to you when I thought I'd never see you again. She slid her gaze off the foot. Why are you still kneeling? Kai reached for her prosthetic hand and brushed his lips against her newly polished knuckles. You'll have to get used to people kneeling to you. It kind of comes with the territory. I'm going to make it a law that the correct way to address your sovereign is by giving a high five. Kai's smile brightened. That's genius. Me too. Cinder pulled her hand away from him and sat down, letting her legs hang over the edge. Her thoughts grew serious again as she stared at the metal foot. Actually, there's something I wanted to get your opinion on. Kai settled beside her. His expression turned curious, and she looked away, bracing herself. I think... She stopped. Gulped started again. I have decided to dissolve the lunar monarchy. Pressing her lips together, she waited. The silence became solid in the space between them. 
But Kai didn't ask why or how or are you insane. Instead, he said, when? I don't know, when things have calmed down, when I think they can handle it. She took in a deep breath. It will happen again. Some king or queen is going to brainwash the people, use their power to enslave them. There has to be some division of power, some checks and balances. So I've decided to change Luna into a republic, elected officials and all. She bit her lip. She still felt silly talking politics like she had a clue. And it wasn't until Kai nodded, thoughtfully, that she realized how important his approval had been to her. She swallowed around the lump in her throat. You think it's a good idea? I think it will be difficult. People don't like change, and even the citizens who were oppressed under Levana immediately accepted you as their new queen. Plus, they have that whole superstition thing about the royal bloodline, but... I think you're right. I think it's what Luna needs. She felt as though an entire moon had been lifted off her shoulders. What will you do then, after you abdicate? I don't know. I hear Thorne is looking for a full-time mechanic, she shrugged, but Kai went on looking pensive. What? I think you should come back to the Commonwealth. You could stay in the palace as a lunar ambassador. It would be a show of good faith, proof that Earth and Luna can work together, coincide together. Cinder chewed on the inside of her cheek. I thought the people of the Commonwealth hated me, she said for the kidnapping and all that other stuff that happened. Please, you're the lost princess that saved them from the reign of Empress Lavana. I heard there's a toy company that wants to make action figures of you. And they want to put up a statue where your booth used to be at the market. She grimaced. Chuckling, Kai took her hand. Whenever you come back, you will be welcome with open arms. And after everything that's happened, you're probably going to have about 200,000 guys wanting to take you to the annual Peace Ball next year. I expect the offers to start rolling in any day now. I highly doubt that. Just wait, you'll see. He tilted his head, clumps of hair falling into his eyes. I figured it couldn't hurt to get my name on the list before anyone else steals you away. If we start now and plan frequent visits between Earth and Luna, I might even have time to teach you to dance. Cinder bit her lip to disguise a budding smile. Please say yes, said Kai. Fiddling with the dead wires of her old foot, she asked, do I have to wear a dress? I don't care if you wear military boots and cargo pants. I just might. Good. Aiko would kill me. She pretended to be considering it as she cast her gaze toward the sky. Can I bring my friends? I will personally extend invitations to the entire Rampian crew. We'll make a reunion out of it. Even Aiko? I'll find her a date. Because there's a rule against androids coming to the ball, you know. I think I know someone who can change that rule. Grinning, she scooted a bit closer. The idea of going back to the ball and facing all those people who had stared at her with such horror and contempt filled her with copious amounts of everything from anxiety to dread to unspeakable joy. I would be honored, she said. His eyes warmed. And those dance lessons? Don't press your luck. Kai tilted her chin toward him and kissed her. She didn't know what number it was, She'd finally figured out how to turn off her brain's auto-count function.
and she didn't care how many times he kissed her. She did care that every kiss no longer felt like their last. Except when Kai pulled away. A hint of sadness had slipped into his expression. Cinder, I believe you would make a great ruler. I believe this decision is proof of that, he hesitated. But I also know you never wanted to be queen, not really. Cinder had never told him that, and she wondered if it had been obvious this whole time. But I have to ask if, Kai hesitated, if you think someday you might consider being an empress. Cinder forced herself to hold his gaze and to swallow the lighthearted joke that rose to the tip of her tongue. He wasn't teasing her about engagement rings and dance lessons. This was a real question from a real emperor who had the real future of his country to consider. If she wanted to be a part of his future, she'd have to be a part of it all. I would consider it, she said then took in the first full breath she'd taken in days. Someday. His grin returned, full force and full of relief. He put an arm around her, and Cinder couldn't smother her own smile as she leaned against him, staring at Artemisia Lake and the white city and planet Earth surrounded by stars. She spun the cumbersome, hateful foot in her fingers. Ever since she could remember, it had been a burden a constant reminder that she was worthless. She was unimportant. She was nothing but a cyborg. She held the foot over the water and let go. And they all lived happily to the end of their days. Now listen to a conversation between Marissa Meyer and Rebecca Solaire. Hi, everyone. This is Rebecca Soler. I'm the audiobook narrator for the series, and I am so privileged and psyched to be speaking with Marissa Meyer. Hi, everybody. I'm Marissa. I'm, of course, the author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I'm very thrilled to be here as well. Okay, so first things first, how do you feel to be, you know, completely finished with such a, an amazing series? Oh, it's been very bittersweet. On one hand, I'm very excited for the book to be out in the world. Um, I've kind of known how the series was going to end since the very beginning when I first started coming up with the story and the characters. So I'm really looking forward to being able to share the ending with readers, and I hope that they'll uh, find it satisfactory and that they'll, you know, have loved going along on this ride with me. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I've been living with these characters for the last seven years of my life, and it's really sad to be kind of saying goodbye to them and sending them on their way. So it's, it's a very bittersweet thing. Personally, I loved being able in this last book to really see Luna for the first time and see the people of Luna and, and see how the disparity, you know, in terms of how people were living, the citizens versus the, the aristocracy, I'm really glad that you made that change and had Scarlet kidnapped and brought to right. <laughs> Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun, and it gave me, um, you know, having, uh, changing it so that Winter and the crew now ends up in one of the outer sectors, and I always thought we would end up in the outer sectors eventually anyway, because that, you know, made the most sense for where the uprising would start. 
Um, but having that more personal connection and developing that uh, friendship between Winter and Scarlet and both of them kind of getting to see the outer sectors and, and you know, Wolf family and, and all of these other little things together, um, I felt had much bigger impact. Your attention to detail and just the way that you would weave in just little little plot lines was just something as a reader and as the narrator, I loved to discover. Like, for example, learning that Wolf never had a tomato, not because of, you know, him being a wolf, but rather because in the outer sectors they they weren't um, given access to fresh produce was so devastating and also such like a little nugget of uh, exploration that like you got to find as a reader. It was a really cool detail. Well, thank you. And I feel... As a writer, so often those little details um, kind of surprise me. Like, it's, it's one of those weird things of being a writer that you don't always feel like you're totally in control. You don't always feel like it's you writing the story. Um, you know, sometimes I'll be writing along and a little detail will just, you know, come out of my fingers and onto the page. And I think, oh, wow, so that explains so much. I had no idea. Um, and so I always feel like I'm discovering the world and the characters uh, for the first time as long as well as the reader. Were there other fairy tales that you explored potentially weaving in or were there any that you wished you had the opportunity to sort of explore or any that you would revisit in a different capacity? Oh, sure. Tons. Um, when I was first planning, I had a whole list of fairy tales that I wanted to include. Um, and the one that almost made it into the series was Puss in Boots. Um, Yeah, which is one of my favorite fairy tales. And uh, so originally I had planned for this to be a five-book series and Puss in Boots was going to be the final in the series. But then as I was outlining and, and figuring out how all these stories fit together, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that it just didn't fit and wasn't working. Um, so it didn't, Puss and Boots didn't last very long in the planning process, um, but there was a time when I thought I was going to do a, a Puss and Boots book as well. Uh, but now, I mean, I still love fairy tales. I would love to someday do a Rumpelstiltskin retelling. Um, I would love to do a Bluebeard retelling at some point. Uh, but I don't know that they will be um, sci-fi or Lunar Chronicles related or possibly something completely different, or if I'll even ever do them at all. But those are definitely two fairy tales that I see lots of potential for. Oh, those are really, really interesting. I will say that we have a, a short story collection coming out called Stars Above in February, um, and there is an epilogue-type story in that collection that will take place about two years after the end of winter. Um, and I I'm, I don't know, I'm trying to think, what am I allowed to say about it? Um, I can tell you that there is a wedding but that is all I'm going to say. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> I loved the countries that you chose to become. Why did you choose those particular countries as being part of the, the futuristic Earthen Union? Well, I chose the places, the settings that I would set the stories in, largely um, based on kind of these Little fairy tale details. Um, for example, many scholars think that the first recorded version of Cinderella um, comes to us from ninth century China. Um, so that's why I selected China for um, Cinder's story. Um, and with 
Charlotte, I wanted some place that had um, a, a history of werewolves or werewolf mythology. And there's werewolves across so many different cultures, but that's left it pretty open. Um, but a lot of the werewolf myths that we have today, as far as uh, the silver bullet killing a werewolf and, and little things like that, um, comes to us out of France. So that that selected France for Scarlet's story. Um, and then in Rapunzel, uh, depending on the version of Rapunzel that you read, um, when she is cast out of the tower, some versions say that she was cast out into a great desert. And when I think great desert, I think of the Sahara. And so that's how, how we ended up with Northern Africa um, being being pressed. So that's kind of how I selected the, those specific areas to tell the stories. Uh, but as far as making the six Earth and Nations, um, a lot of it was for convenience. I wanted to have a world, um, A, that had world peace. And I feel like as long as we have hundreds and hundreds of countries, that's pretty unlikely. Um, I feel like it's a lot easier for six world leaders to get together and talk than hundreds of world leaders. Um, and then also I wanted uh, the world leaders and Kai specifically to be able to make decisions that would have huge sweeping consequences for large parts of the world. Um, so I, I wanted to narrow it down to um, just a few countries, and I wanted the Eastern Commonwealth um, to be a huge world leader in that regard. Um, and so then I looked at a map and just kind of penciled out uh, boundaries that seemed logical to me based on our, our current countries and cultures, and those became the Earth and Nations. There wasn't a whole lot of science to it beyond that point. I personally have loved going on your website and seeing all of the artwork that gets sent yeah. into you. Has that, I mean, similarly, here are people reading your books and then creating their versions of what they think the characters look like. I mean, ha how has that been? It is so cool. Seeing fan art is probably my favorite thing about being a published author. Um, it's, not only a huge honor to know that you've inspired someone to create something um, and that they've loved the characters enough that they want to, to create their own renditions of them, um, but it's it's true. It, it brings them to life in a way uh, that I couldn't do just with pen and paper um, or computer and paper. Um, yeah, so I, I love seeing fan art, and some of them are spot on. Some of them just nail the characters and just take my breath away that that is, that is exactly how I pictured them. Um, and others aren't, aren't quite what I had in mind, but that's the wonderful thing about fandoms and, and having to this community kind of rise up out of the stories is that everyone can make their own interpretations of them, which I think is fantastic. One of my personal favorite things about just the way that the whole book is art directed is I love, A, the quotes that you use with every introduction of every book and the artwork that they use, where do you get, how hard is it to select, like, the one distilled thought after, you know, you introduce book one of, say, like, with Winter right now, the young princess was as beautiful as daylight. She was more beautiful even than the queen herself. How hard is it to narrow it down? They change constantly. That quote, the first quote in Winter, was actually something completely different up until, um, gosh, I think I changed it in copy edit again. Um, so it, it changed constantly. And actually, I think, because they had put, oh gosh, let me think. They had put the, a chapter from Winter or a couple chapters from Winter in the end of Ferris. 
And I believe that that has the old quote in it. So it's actually changed from when they did that. Um, so it, it changes constantly. I'm constantly changing my mind about what quotes are going to, to be best and set the mood and, you know, tell the reader where we're going with this first part of the book but not give too much away. Um, it, it's hard. And I do write all of the quotes myself. Um, I, I go back and I read some uh, translations of the fairy tales and kind of choose a thought or uh, a part of the fairy tale that I want to highlight, but then I write my own version of that line and, and often will tweak it to more fit um, my stories, So, which is fun. I love doing it. And that's part of the reason I think that they change so much is because I'm constantly wanting to go back and change it and make it stronger and make it better. And um, it's the, the perfectionist in me coming through. So what's the difference between Marissa pre-Cinder to Marissa post-Winter? Oh, gosh. Um, good question. Uh, I'd love to say that I'm so much more confident in my writing, and I feel like I've got it all figured out, uh, but that is not at all the case. I feel like you just get more and more self-conscious as you go along. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I definitely feel that I've grown uh, extensively as a writer. Um, I think when I first started writing this series and I planned it out and thought, okay, I'm going to write this four book series and there's going to be, you know, these eight main characters and all these secondary characters and subplots in this epic world. And, um, I look back on it now and I think, what were you thinking, Marissa? You, you were not capable of writing this story. Um, but I, I did it and I feel like now, you know, I grew so, so much, and it's, I guess it's hard to describe, because I feel like the Marissa that I was when I wrote Cinder was not capable of writing Winter, um, but because each book gradually got more complex, um, I, I forced myself to grow and learn uh, over the books, and in the end, hopefully I, I nailed Winter and did a good job with it, and I don't think that I could have done it um, as my first book. So I definitely think that I grew a lot as a writer and in, in learning uh, just elements of the craft and storytelling. I can't thank you enough for, as a fan and as, an, as a narrator, like, you know, gigs like this come along very rarely. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad that you had fun. <laughs> to hear this interview in its entirety and for other audio extras, visit Macmillan Audio's Unabridged Access blog at unabridgedaccess, all one word, dot com. We hope you've enjoyed Winter, a Macmillan Audio production from Firewall and Friends. Text copyright 2015 by Rampin Books. Production copyright 2015 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved.